Merriam-Webster, I was looking for definitions of righteous because what I'm going to teach next week would be very hard to understand without a foundation of understanding what it means to be righteous. And Merriam-Webster had a, a great definition that worked really well with the biblical perspective that I want to share. And, and it describes righteous as acting in accord with divine or moral law and free from guilt or sin. See, biblically, righteousness has two applications. One is practical, and one, I mean, this is my word. You might have a better word, but I I use the word positional. Practical righteousness and positional righteousness. So when you look at the definition that Merriam-Webster uses, um, practical righteousness is acting in accord with divine or moral law. It's to do right. So in our culture, there is no definition of right. If it, the definition of right and wrong in our culture is how I feel and whether it's legal or illegal statutory laws that our government has. So if, if the government says this is illegal, then it's wrong because the law says so. You may not agree with the law. You might not want to be restricted in that way, but most people would agree if the law says you can't do it, it's wrong. The other would be if it makes me feel good, it's righteous, and if it doesn't make me feel good, it's unrighteous. So therefore, I define generally for myself what's right and what's wrong. So for a Christian, the definition of what's right and what's wrong comes from God's word. We don't need a law to tell us that we shouldn't steal from somebody because we know that that's morally wrong, and we wouldn't do that because we already have a book that teaches us what's right and what's wrong, a God and a spirit that teaches us what's right and what's wrong. The second part of that is positional. And the second part of Merriam-Webster's definition is free from guilt or sin. So positional righteousness has nothing to do with how you behave. It's how you're seen by God. It's how he would define your relationship with him. And the Bible says that, that every person is found in one of two places spiritually, either in Adam being, you know, Adam and Eve, Adam, being in man, in mankind, in flesh, or being in Christ. If when God looks at you, he sees your position as being in Christ, then positionally, you are righteous before him. Your standing is secure. But if he sees you in Adam, then positionally, you are not right before him. Okay? So, so you might have just given all your money to the poor, and God looked at you doing it, and that was a righteous act to do. But outside of being in Christ, you're not positionally righteous despite whatever righteous acts you might perform, no matter how well-defined they might have been from the Bible. So you can be, you can be, uh, that's someplace not to go. There's two aspects of righteousness that I'm going to try to show you today, and it's going to be very important that we understand those because of what I'm going to show you next week. There's positional righteousness. How does God see you in relationship to himself? And then practical righteousness. What's the day-to-day fruit of your life? Okay. Maybe just one more little bit on that because I want to I want to bring in the stained garment perspective. So, so we may day-to-day do righteous acts, but we are not in ourselves righteous. We never have been and we will practically never will be to the standard that's required to have that eternal relationship with God. We might do righteous things, but our only true righteousness 
is in Christ. And, and the way that I think of it, and I'll show you a scripture here that kind of references that, is like a garment. Adam and Eve were clothed. They were naked in the garden, right? But they were clothed in righteousness. They'd never broken righteousness until they actually ate and broke the command. The only command that they had, they, they broke that, and they became unrighteous. If you could imagine, if they weren't naked in the garden, they had this perfectly white garment, and it was beautiful. And when God looked at them, he saw that perfectly white garment, and he knew that they were righteous. But the minute that Eve and then Adam ate from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that sin stained their garment. And their garment could never be washed clean. They could have never committed another sin. Let's say there was more sins or there was more fruit on that tree. And they could have, from that moment on, never, ever taken another bite of the forbidden fruit. The stain in their garment would have remained. There's no way to get that stain out. So while they might have behaved righteously the rest of their lives, had God allowed them to stay in the garden, they were not righteous positionally anymore. Okay? All right. Now, let me read you some scripture. Um, Romans 5, 18 through 21 kind of gives you a, a, a mankind perspective on righteousness. So then as through one transgression, Adam, you know, Adam of Adam and Eve, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so through one act of righteousness, Jesus, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So one of the things that's always puzzled me about the scriptures is it says those who are under the law, those who aren't under the law, yet everybody is dead in sin even though up till Moses, the only law that had ever been given was don't eat from the tree or the fruit of this particular tree. Yet it says here that all mankind were dead in their sin because God imputed Adam's sin to all of mankind. Righteousness then comes only through Jesus Christ who had no sin. And while sin reigned in death, righteousness, and it's important to see that righteousness, or grace, excuse me, would reign through righteousness. The grace of God through the righteousness imputed to us through Jesus Christ is how we become righteous positionally before God. For Israel as a nation now, this is Romans chapter 10, um, and it's, it's the preamble to the scriptures that I think uh, do the best job of condensing how a person gets saved. So Romans 10, 8, 9, and 10 describe bring together all of the, you know, repents, um, believes, all those different places come together in Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. And Paul is speaking here about, about his brothers and sisters that are actually Israel, the Jewish people. And he says, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject, them, subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So he's lamenting that here are these Gentiles who never pursued righteousness. They never cared about keeping the law of Moses 
were finding righteousness in Christ Jesus. But over here, the Jews who were striving to be righteous before God by keeping the law didn't find righteousness. And he said that the reason that the Jews didn't find righteousness is because they went looking for it outside of knowledge, that they did it outside of faith, that righteousness for any human being could only come through faith. They were trying to do it by way of works, by the keeping of the law. Amen. Amen. The righteousness that's required here, it says twice, the righteousness of God. To have relationship with God, our righteousness must equal his righteousness. When you see in the New Testament the words righteous or righteousness, which, as you see, it has, it has a couple of implications, but ultimate righteousness, positional righteousness, sanctified, set apart, and holy, you shall be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. Those three words, you can kind of mush them all together. They have subtle differences, but, but in, often they're speaking to the same exact thing. And the, the holiness that's required to be with God, the righteousness that's required to be with God, and the sanctification that's required to be with God are his. So my holiness, if it does not equal God's holiness, I can't be with him. It's just not possible. If my righteousness, if Mother Teresa, imagine anybody more righteous than Mother Teresa, her righteousness was not equal to his righteousness. Therefore, she could not be with him. And sanctification is an interesting word because to be sanctified means to be set apart. So God, by definition, isn't sanctified. He represents the perfect place. There is no sanctifying God because he, he wouldn't be and doesn't possess anything that's not perfect and holy. But for us to be sanctified is to be set apart from everything that isn't God anything that would be displeasing to him. So when you see those three words in the context of this conversation, you can almost use them synonymously. Okay, so Israel did not achieve righteousness because they tried to find righteousness by the keeping of the law versus through faith. Okay, then uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 explains a little bit about why that didn't work. For For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh... God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, not sinning flesh, but the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So I don't have the scripture, but Paul says that the law is holy and the command is righteous and holy and good. He's trying to, people are trying to say, well, gosh, if the law brought death, what's good about the law? He says, no, 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 the law is excellent. The problem is flesh. See, the law was perfect, and it served its purpose perfectly, but because flesh is weak, and man wants what man wants, and he's already been corrupted by what happened in the garden, the law, the beauty and the awesomeness of the law falls short because of the weakness of our flesh to keep it. If our flesh wasn't weak, the law would would have brought about righteousness. The problem is our flesh is weak, and we want what we want. Therefore, the law can't, can't be used as a mechanism for righteousness. It's a mechanism to make us aware that we're not righteous. Okay. So those verses speak to positional righteousness, the righteousness of God that's required to have relationship with God. 
this is now speaking to positional righteousness. And, and these are a little bit easier. So this is like, um, oh, excuse me, I got ahead of myself. Two scriptures that give you a great picture of positional righteousness. Positional righteousness. Righteous in, in how God sees you in with, with regard to relationship with him. Sinless and pure. Your garment perfectly white. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So, but apart from the law, the righteousness of God, God's very righteousness has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. You remember the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him and and they go up onto this mountain and the three guys are standing there, and Jesus is standing over here, and all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses manifest. Like, the glory cloud comes down. God says, this is my son. I'm pleased in him, or I love him. I, I don't remember which words he uses. And then, and, the, and these three Jewish guys see Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. And then God says, this is my son. Listen to him. See, if you were Jewish... Everything that you believed, everything that drove your behavior, if you cared, was driven by what the prophets, Elijah, Ezekiel, what what God spoke through Jeremiah, all the prophets, and then the law, Moses. The prophets represented by Elijah, the law represented by Moses. And God was telling these three Jewish guys, hey, listen, you see the law and you see the prophets. This is my son, listen to him. In Hebrews it says, "In, in the former times, The Lord spoke to our fathers through the law and the prophets, but today he speaks through his son, right? So God was affirming Jesus. He glorified him. He made him glow. I mean, I can't even imagine what that was like. If you read read John's writings, he references that. Peter's writings, he references that particular time where they actually saw the glorified Jesus. The point is that Jesus is the answer to the law and the prophets. That's what Paul is saying right here. For righteousness sake the righteousness of God, and it comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So if you believe, placing your faith in Jesus Christ, as described, forgive me, in Romans 10, 8, 9, and 10, then you have the righteousness of God. There is nobody exclusive of the need for Jesus' righteousness being imputed to them such that their positional righteousness is perfect before God. Okay, Galatians three twenty four through 27. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, having clothed yourselves with Christ. That's where the picture of the garment comes in, right? My garment was stained. If I, if I had been like, it could have been like I described Adam and Eve, you know, figured out that I was a sinner, stopped sinning and literally somehow was perfect with regard to sin for the rest of my life, I would stand before Jesus and I would be damned eternally to hell because I'm still dressed in my sin stained garment. What he's saying here is now because you were baptized into Christ, not water baptism, but you were literally yourself was baptized baptized into Christ Jesus. And when God sees you, he sees Christ from the perspective of righteousness, positional righteousness. Nobody, nobody doesn't need, nobody doesn't need, that's got to be more negatives than belonging there. Everybody needs Christ's righteousness in order to be righteous before God. Okay, positional righteousness, kind of practical, behavioral, personal, 
positional righteousness was that. This will now be personal righteousness, my own righteousness that's manifested from my life. What's practical? What do I practice? How do I behave? Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I wondered whether or not, my sense was always that this, this represented practical, personal righteousness, not positional righteousness. So I, I, I dug out some commentaries and I looked and they all seem to agree that this is related to your personal righteousness. It's not, it's not saying, oh God, I must be righteous before you so that I might have eternal life. Please send your son so I can be saved. It's, oh God, I have to be righteous as your son is righteous. I have to honor you and serve you and please you by walking in righteousness, being a righteous person of your own behavior. Matthew 5, 43 and 44. I'm just going to give you examples of what righteousness looks like, and I'm going to give you examples of what unrighteousness looks like. Uh, Matthew 5, 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So uh, in the, under the law, it was legitimate to hate your enemies. Under grace and mercy, it's not. So it's righteous to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's a, the Bible says that if you only love those that love you, what credit is that to you? Go love somebody who doesn't love you. I was going to show you guys a video today. I, I didn't get enough reaction from the people I showed it to, to to think that you'd care that much. But basically, it was a it was a video that was taken from a like a I don't know a TV show of some sort. And there was this guy. I think it was called the Green River Serial Killer. Um, back in the 70s or the 80s, he, he they know of 40 some women that this guy killed. They say there might have been more. He struck a plea deal to help them, you know, know all the people that he killed and where the bodies were and that he wouldn't get the death penalty. So so in this video, it's showing him in the courtroom. He's like a psychopath or sociopath or I don't know what you'd call him. He's cold as a rock. He, he, he confesses to like 40 some murders. The judge says, what about this one? Guilty. What about this one? Guilty. No emotion at all in this guy's face. And then it shows as the people that were murdered as, as their family members come up and they get to speak to him and they're like, you know, you're, you're the scum of the earth and, and you're going to burn in hell and that's what you deserve. And, and you said you can't even remember them, but we remember them and all through this, the guy's just stone-faced. He has no emotion. He can't. And then this guy gets up and he says, um, everybody in this room hates you, but I don't. You've made it very hard for me to do what I believe to do, but I forgive you. My Lord tells me that I can't not forgive because I've been forgiven and I forgive you. And, and I don't remember what all the words said. As soon as he started to speak those words, this guy's lip starts to quiver and his face starts to melt and his heart is being touched. And when I watched it for the very first time, I heard this scripture and, and I'll get this a little bit wrong, but it's like, um, it ends, it's the end of Romans chapter 12, and it ends with uh, never return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. And before that, it says, um, love your enemy, and by doing so, you will heap burning coals onto his head. And see, that's righteous, what that guy did. And what happened was God started to get away into that man's heart now, because despite how evil and unrighteous and horrible what he did was, God loved him the same as he loves any of us. He was, he was influenced by evil. He, for whatever reasons, there's always a story. I don't know what the guy's story is, but there's always something, right? 
And God used this guy who would speak truth and righteousness to say, I don't, I don't damn you to hell. I forgive you and, and just show him love and compassion. And it started to break it down. The, the heaping of the burning coals caused this guy to start to actually be able to have some emotion and start to deal with his stuff. What that guy did was righteous. Nobody in the room but him probably understood it because they couldn't get past their, their anger and, and the pain that they were feeling. But, but the Lord says, man, you can't stop in your pain and your anger. Righteousness causes the kingdom to come. And that's what I saw happening. I mean, that scripture popped into my head. The minute I saw that guy's face start to quiver, he had just had burning coals placed on top of his head. Not for the purpose of being condemned, but for the purpose of potentially getting saved. Okay, um, Luke twenty twenty five, And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Very simple. It's righteous to pay your taxes. If, if you're not paying your taxes, I mean, hey, our government gives all kinds of ways that you can pay less taxes because they're trying to incent certain things. That is absolutely legitimate. But if we try not to pay our taxes, we are not acting righteously. We need to give to our country whatever it is that our country prescribes that we owe. We don't have to agree with it. We just need to do it. First, thus. <laughs> 1 Thessalonians 5.15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. So when someone is evil to us, just like in that little story, it's righteous to respond in goodness. It's It's righteous to not respond in evil when evil comes to us. Jesus said, if somebody, you know, pops you on one side, give them the other side. If a guy tells you to carry that, and it's a story... The, the Roman soldiers were li- literally permitted to, to demand that somebody would carry their pack for them through Israel. But they only were required to carry it for a mile. They didn't have to carry it forever. They'd pick it up and carry it for a mile. So, so he says, if somebody says, demands to you that you carry their pack, f- don't carry it for just one mile. Carry it for two miles. Be righteous. Just show them the goodness of God. Do that which is good. Seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. See, when we care more about others than ourselves, we are behaving righteously. When we put ourselves above other people, we are behaving unrighteously. The, the Bible teaches us that humility is the number one characteristic of Christianity. If, there, if, you, if you're like, God, I don't know what to ask for, ask for humility. And if somebody says, don't pray for humility because God will give it to you, you say, I am going to pray for humility because I want God to give it to me because I need God to give it to me because everything about my flesh wants to be first. And the Lord says that I should put myself last, not first. And then the beauty is the more we submit ourselves to lowliness, the more likelihood of exaltation, right? Because God only exalts the humble, not the proud. He resists the proud. Okay, just a couple on unrighteousness. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 is a whole list. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So all of those things listed in those two verses are unrighteous. Fornicators, sex outside of marriage, 
marriage, adulterers, sex outside of It's amazing how many sex type stuff are in there. Um, idolaters, anybody that would put God below themselves, which is the biblical definition of pride, is unrighteous. So if you see any of these kind of things stirring up in your life, then there's, a, there's unrighteousness being practiced in your life. Swindlers, you know, you have a business deal, an opportunity, and, and you don't do it in a, in a right and fair way. You think, hey, listen, you know, the guy didn't think to ask. not my problem. It's his problem. And you collect more for something than it's really worth. It's unrighteous. It's not business. It's unrighteous. And, and if, if we would as Christians, if we would do all of our business not concerned with the bottom line, but with doing right, something tells me that the bottom line would be over the top. Um, James 4.4, 4, you adulteresses. That's how I know he's speaking to the church. You adulteresses, because the world's not married to Jesus. They're not his, his uh, betrothed. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy to God. The things of the world, God doesn't look the other way. He doesn't say, you know, I can understand. That's, that's how everybody else is, and I love you, and I have grace for you, and you can just participate with the world and its stuff. No, when we participate with the world and its stuff, we are enemies towards God. We have created... Um, I don't know what the right word is, but but our relationship is outside of righteousness. In the, <laughs> I wish I understood all the things that equal the world because I have personal concern that things that I might be looking at as inconsequential might very well be consequential. We need to be very conscious of our participation with the world. Um, John, uh, 1 John 3.17, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? It's unrighteous to see a, a real need and have the material things. Heidi Baker used to preach this all the time. She's like, the good news to somebody that's hungry looks a lot like food. It doesn't look a lot like a prayer for food. It looks like food. And it's good that you pray for somebody who needs to be sustained, but it's better that you give them some food while you're praying with them to have food, right? So if we have, it says all, all through the Bible, if you have, give. If you see somebody that has need, meet the need, meet the need, meet the need. That is seeking after his kingdom, and that is walking in his righteousness so that all of what you need will be given to you to continue to meet your needs and the needs of the people that God places in front of us. To, to see the need, to have the answer and to withhold the answer from the need is unrighteous. It's just unrighteous. And sometimes I think, you know, we'll even try to judge the need. It's like, well, you know what? If for this, this, and this, and this that you shouldn't have did, done, you wouldn't have the need. So you kind of brought that on yourself, and the Bible speaks to sowing and reaping, so I think that I should pray for you a meal and keep my sandwich. I don't think that's God's heart. I think that if you're the murderer and you killed 40-some people and a man tells you you're forgiven in my heart, you're not, you owe me no debt. It was his daughter that was killed. That's meeting a guy's need. Giving him the sandwich, even though 
Somebody gave him money for food and he bought a bottle. He's still hungry. And it's love that brings about, or kindness, that brings about repentance. I didn't have it on my list, but it keeps coming into my head. Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. How, how you would want to be treated, treating other people that way is righteous. Okay. <laughs> You're like, I told you there was going to be no punchline today. <laughs> Let me just summarize quickly. There's two types or two ways that we see righteousness applied scripturally. Practical, how I live, and behavioral. Practical and behavioral, excuse me, how I live, what you practice. Positional, how you're seen by God with regard to being in relationship with him or not. Practical, behavioral righteousness, positional righteousness. To be positionally right with God requires that a person be perfect and holy as God himself is perfect and holy. Nobody has that. All have sinned, hence no one has the righteous, has this righteousness. Nobody is self-righteous. That's what the Jews, they, they didn't approach righteousness by faith. They approached it by the keeping of the law. They were trying to be self-righteous. No one is righteous before God of their own righteousness. Therefore, the righteousness necessary to be eternally reconciled with God must be imputed from someone that is perfect and holy. And anybody who's born again, remember it said that not those of us that not walk by the flesh but walk by the spirit have had the righteousness of Jesus imputed to them. Your sin was imputed to him. So your unrighteousness was imputed to him. It's, it just I can't stop thinking about it. I'm trying to work through in my mind how all this works. Like, couldn't Jesus have just imputed his righteousness without having to have our unrighteousness imputed to him. But because of justice, that would have never worked because the sin had to be dealt with somewhere, either with us or somewhere else. And my sin, or I'm going to use, I'll be the bad example on this one. Keith's sin can't be imputed to me under his righteousness because I'm not righteous. I would die in his sin. And guess what? I would stay dead. Right? But Jesus had no unrighteousness. He had no sin. Therefore, the wages of sin is death. Right? Jesus died. He was killed to pay the wage of sin for everybody. But death had no hold on Jesus himself because he had no sin. And that's what happens to those of us, those of you, that are actually truly born again. Is that his righteousness, his perfect white robe has been imputed to you as your sin was imputed to him, not by your good works, but by your faith in him as the perfect and spotless lamb of God. So that's the end of this week. Next week, um, I'm going to show you from the scriptures why it's absolutely critical that we recognize in our own lives righteousness and or unrighteousness and what the implications of that are, okay? All right. Um, if anybody needs prayer, those of you that are prayer folks, and you know, when we say, hey, listen, um, you know, if you're approved to come up and pray for people, it's because we've had a conversation with you. If, if you would like to be someone who up here ministers to others, let's just have a conversation and then you're green-lighted too. It would be awesome if everybody was up here waiting for somebody to pray for, but there was nobody to come and get prayed for because everybody was up here to pray for them. And all we did was turn... 180 degrees and started ministering to each other. Amen. Amen. 
Okay, so anyway, if you've had that conversation with us, come on up and be ready. If you need prayer, please, especially a prayer, um, well, any kind of prayer. Because somebody said today that, that, that in this place, it really in God's kingdom, this place isn't that special. But, but in God's kingdom, Jesus purchased for us our shalom. He purchased for us uh, wellness in our bodies. And he purchased for us um, wellness in our rela- you know, positional righteousness with God. So God has impressed upon me that you, if you don't use it, you lose it. Not righteousness, not those things, what Jesus purchased, but you've got to exercise. When he gives us revelation about these things, we have to exercise them to become excellent and strong. Um, I had a very strong impression about your hearing, Joan, that, uh, that it's be- we have to just keep praying for it. it, it it's just going to take more than once. And, and we can't just pray for something. Oh, it didn't happen. You know, must not be God's will. No, there are so many testimonies. Here I go again. Listen to John G. Lake the other day. And John G. Lake talked about at his healing rooms, like this, this place where there's just crazy miracles all the time. He said, and, and this, you know, this miracle healing thing didn't happen until they were prayed for a hundred and some times. And this one that required 50 sometimes. And this one, 30 some. And this one, 200 times. I'm like, wow, that's John G. Lake. And, and, and the difference is they, um, not a by did. Anyway, they were persistent. They endured, they persevered in faith, believing, no, no, God's word says that we will heal the sick. If they didn't get healed, then we just need to take another swing. We just need to take another swing. We just need to take another swing. So those prayer folks come up, those that need prayer, come get prayed for. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all these people that came. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that we are going to live the abundant life that Jesus purchased for us, that we are going to be your church that's a city on a hill. We are going to be the people that raised Jesus up, that all the world can see him, and it will be his glory shining through his church that's going to bring about many, many, many souls into your kingdom. I ask a blessing over everybody. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much.